0: This episode is brought to you by Airlock Strike Indicators, distributed by Ray Jeff Sports, makers of Echo. Through its patented inline technology, Airlock Strike Indicators keep your leader intact, eliminating the kinks and pigtails so common with other indicators on the market. It's been a staple for me and my kit. I've used it on a variety of water from the Mighty Deschutes in Oregon to little streams here in West Michigan, and it's worked as promised every time. No kinks, no pigtails they're available in a variety of colors and sizes and if they're not at your local fly shop yet ask for them by name for more info go to www.fishairlock.com it starts
1: raining and i got water running down my spectacles and it's dark and i go okay i'm not tying on another fly. this is it and i turn around and i arguably see the largest
0: flash of light in my life and i got struck by lightning Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today we've got Glenn Blackwood, the local authority on all things fly fishing in my home state of Michigan. We are at his shop in Rockford, Great Lakes Fly Fishing Company. Glenn's agreed to tell us an adventure story today. So we're going to learn a little bit about his life and his passion, which is fly fishing. Glenn, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for the invitation to come on and talk to the community. Yeah, absolutely. We're glad to have you. Um, so, just to, to start things off, Glenn, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background. How did you get into uh, to fly fishing? Who who's the first guy to put a rod in your hand? Where'd you grow up? Give us some give us some details.
1: Well, the story or my story of fly fishing is really a family story. Um, it's a, a story of old men. Um, historically, if you look at my family. Um, my great grandfather uh, was a timberman in central Pennsylvania, outside of uh, just west of Happy Valley of, of State College. Um, and my grandfather grew up learning to fish and shoot, hunt—not uh, for sport or recreation, for sustenance. But sustenance, feeding lumber camp people. No way. Yeah, uh, dead serious. Um, and he was fortunate enough to go to the university. Uh, okay. it, he went to, uh, at that time, what was called Carnegie Mellon University in, in Pittsburgh. And upon graduation, uh, he got a job with the federal government at Wright Patterson Air Force Base um, as an aeronautical engineer. But we kept, so they moved to to just outside of Dayton, Ohio, from, uh, you know, kind of a big shock, if you will, from uh, the mountains of uh, the Appalachians, the Alleghenies, uh, to. South Central or Southwestern Ohio. Uh, But he always kept a family epicenter in Center County. Uh, The most beautiful cemetery in the world, sounds kind of crass, is in this little mountain valley uh, or mountainside uh, meadow in the Bald Eagle Valley. My grandparents are both buried there. My father, who passed away last October, is buried there. I'm going to be buried there. So it's really the, the epicenter of our family. Um, at least on the the male side, my grandfather's side, has been there. And there's a tremendous amount of fishing in that opportunity. There's the famous Spring Creek uh, where George Harvey and Joe Humphreys taught their classes at Penn State. Uh, There are a lot of of backcountry, freestone little brook trout and wild brown trout streams um, that my grandfather knew as a boy, uh, through the timber business, which he then passed along to me uh and and that's kind of really where uh the the impetus of this all started, just being a boy and and catching wild fish okay uh, and, and again, even as a child, wild fish meant something to my grandfather, it meant something to my father, it meant something to those people because you know, again, my grandfather was a child of the Depression. Okay. My father was a child of the Second World War. Okay. Um, gas rationing, things of those sorts, and, and had a really hard. I mean, early on, those old timbermen and those old hard. You know, you hear the term hard scrabble, but yeah. until you've really seen that, you don't understand how hard it was. You know, there was certainly the the understanding of the wild fish and the environment that they were in was was very important uh, to my grandfather and to, like I said, Pat Holt and Uncle Gib and, and people that, that only matter to me or were there, but were certainly the old men that, that built my life and taught me a great deal. There's a little... Freestone Trout Stream in Center County near Black Machanon State Park. And along this little trout stream, there's a deer camp called Camp Askins. Camp Askins is this great, you know, you use the term big woods of kind of a falcon or Faulkner term. But really, north central Pennsylvania has a lot of big woods, state game lands. Um, That's where their deer camp was. Okay. And when you look at this deer camp, you think, why was it? placed here but you walk you know maybe 20 feet outside 30 feet outside of the deer camp and here is the impetus of this little run Pennsylvania calls small streams runs runs
0: yep I'm
1: not going to use the the name of this run you can probably find <laughs> it on a map google maps shows us the world these days sure. but anyway there's the spring percolates up out of the The ground, Drew. Okay. And there's a pool, a little pool. I mean, and it's maybe it's bigger than a bathtub. It's like three bathtubs wide. But you can drink the water coming out of the pool, and there's brook trout there. Come on. The impetus, you go there in the fall, and you'll always see a brook trout, two brook, two or three brook trout in there making their reds or beds and spawning. But they put it there because this natural spring boiled up, bubbled up out of the water. Cold and oxygenated cold, water, and they had the deer camp always had a fresh thing fresh of water. trout. And the great other great thing about it is, is that I mean, you have to, could never do it today, but they had the coolest spring house that I've ever seen in my life because they built this spring house a little bit downstream and put it up on cinder blocks. But the stream ran it ran because it's, it's a small little creek; it's not very wide. But the spring house the creek ran right underneath and everything was up so this springhouse kept cool cold water running underneath it to keep everything you know somewhat refrigerated at a time when you know everything was either you know wood or ice
0: dad uncle's grandfather huge influence in uh, in your upbringing who's the first one to put a fly rod in your hand
1: the first major fly fishing trip i took was when I was 10 years old and we went up to, again in Pennsylvania, uh, Slate Run, which is a a very famous, very well-known wild brook and brown trout fishery uh, that flows into the Pine Creek uh, area in Le and Tioga counties. And I didn't catch a fish. (laughs) I didn't catch a fish, and I was distraught. But these are pretty technical, hard fish, uh, very technical, hard fish, even today. I just didn't have the skill set. For wild fish. Okay. Um, you know, fish are natural eaters. Fish don't understand catch and release. They think that if they eat something unnatural, they get served with a side of rice and a nice Chardonnay. <laughs> and it, presentation is everything. The wrong fly with the perfect presentation will catch you fish. But the perfect fly with bad presentation, you're going to starve. The year that I was 12, we get into this pool, and there happened to be feeding fish, and, uh, I happened to make a cast, and, uh, a foot long, a legitimate foot long brook trout ate a, a Catskill-style light Cahill. Awesome. And, uh, I landed that fish. So that's... Awesome. That's, uh, you know, you can say, um that was pr- the the first really truly wild dry fly fish that I re- that at least I can remember that that had
0: significance sure that was the moment of enlightenment it sounds like mm-hmm. it took 2 years it certainly did yeah i had one of those too i remember in my story um is very different than yours but the parallel piece is is where i landed my first trout on a specific fly on a specific stretch and and I had that that moment where it was a culmination everything everything clicked there um, and it set off a, a passion a lifelong passion it became a, a significant part of my life Cool. it became you know something that
1: I just didn't want to do I had to do
0: bring us up to speed on on Michigan what brought you to the state of Michigan and uh, how, how did that season of life unravel
1: You know, that's uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I graduated from The Ohio State University with a degree in agriculture and went to work for an auction real estate farm management company. At that time, uh, we were in the agricultural financial crash of the the early to mid-80s. And uh, I was talented enough to do my job. I just was not emotionally... Connected. mentally ready, um, mature enough, um, for some of the things that happened when you're dealing with foreclosures and that, you know, what do you do when, uh, when you're searching for things, you go back to your roots, you know, there's three reasons to live in Michigan and that's trot, grouse, and woodcock. And, uh, <laughs> I like that, you know, uh, I, uh, I came up here 30 some years ago and, uh, uh, that's kind of how I got here. It was, you know, kind of through a uh, a career change, kind of through a, a crossroads in my life, uh, kind of following trout. Okay. Um, you know, in 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 using trout and using fishing is is I don't want to come across the sacrilegious here, but you know, kind of a pilgrimage or a journey, sure, uh, to to get those roots back. Yeah. And then I met my wife, Kathleen, and she's from Michigan, and, you know, we've been here ever since. I've talked a lot about my grandfather, my grandfather growing up and in, in shooting and fishing to, to feed lumbermen.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, my father was a conservation officer with the Ohio Department of Natural Resources for 36 years. Oh, wow, okay. So, you know, I grew up in a, in a home where conservation, conservation ethic um, was incredibly high no one's going to care if i die tomorrow I'm not trying to sound really weird here but if i die tomorrow nobody's going to say nobody's going to care that i am the fly shop what i want people to care about or to think about is is the conservation side of the equation you know given that back and i would encourage no matter what you do whether you know you're a biker or a paddler you know give something back to part of the resources or the trails that you use um, you know, and, it's, and in my case, it's those three things are, are my focal points. Uh, those three things, you know, trout, grouse and woodcock, um, young successional forests are very, very important, not just for those birds, but for you know, I think it's 158 other species.
0: And when um, you say young successional forests, are you talking um, are, you, are you just talking hardwoods with new growth?
1: Well, take Michigan, for example. Go walk through Hartwick Pines. Hartwick Pines is a beautiful state park. It shows what the tall pines and timbers were like in Michigan. Okay? Yeah. But there's no wildlife there. Right. Because there's no undergrowth for protection from habitat or implements. There's no food source and berries or anything. Right. It's just big pine trees with that. Yeah. Where young successional growth. Gives an understory, gives berries for not only grouse and woodcock, but songbirds. Yeah, you know, uh, lots of things. So that that timber management and putting together a balanced plan um, is is really really important um, for rabbits and squirrels as well as as grouse and woodcock.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, I can remember growing up. Uh, my my stand-in grandfather was Blake Forslund, um, and he had. Forty acres or so, kind of in the Marne area, mm-hmm. um, and watching uh, watching that man handle conservation on his plot was uh, was very eye opening to me. At you know at the age of sixteen, watching him selectively take specific hardwoods, remove them from his plot, so that you know more of the undergrowth could could have a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, really benefited that that chunk of land. And like you said, all of the, the, the small stuff that comes up as a result from all of the, the increased sunlight that you're making available um, really benefited that chunk to the point where everything thrived. I mean, there were squirrels, there were woodchucks, there were chipmunks, there were um, every species of songbird. There were uh, there were deer. There were coyotes. Everything that you could you could put in uh, you know pretty much put in the greater region was was represented there. And I think he did a wonderful job of selectively pulling certain specific you know hardwoods that were ready for harvest. It, That's and, a huge difference than clear cutting.
1: And and I think that that message of conservation. Isn't just in the natural resources field, in a trout stream or in young successional force or whatever. But that message of conservation um, and stewardship, maybe it's a better term, uh, really needs to follow you through your life, your family, your occupation, um, just as a principle, as it, it, it enhances all those things as well.
0: What brought you up to the fly shop? Get us up to speed on, on um, how you ended up owning and operating your own fly shop.
1: The great American dream, maybe. Um, after I worked for Dick and Nancy uh, Popes at the Thornapple Apple order Shop, um, I took a position with the Scott Fly Rod Company uh, and actually moved out of state for a while. Um, but my father-in-law was, was not doing well. So we, uh, we came back to West Michigan. And actually, this business um, was in bankruptcy. Um, it had, uh, there had been a previous fly shop here in Rockford. Um, and uh, the creditors kind of ask if I would take it over and turn it around and see if uh, we could get something, turn this thing around. And now I own it. So uh, Simple enough. Simple enough.
0: Okay, so Adventure Deficit Community, Glenn is uh, is joining us today because he has an adventure story uh, that he would like to share with us, and uh, I certainly don't want to uh, to get in the way of that. So, Glenn, what is the story that you've got to share with us today? Um, go ahead and, and let us know what, uh, what your adventure is. I've thought long and hard about this, and, and the,
1: the biggest thing that... I want to, to go across is everybody needs to understand that there's inherent risks to one's person when they step outside. Fishing, for instance, you think, geez, fishing is, is such an nothing's going to happen. It's perfectly fine. But a few years ago, um, I made a really, really poor decision. Um again, we go back to Pennsylvania. The kids were little, and we went out to our place outside of State College. Um, we had a family uh, reunion coming up, and so we go out on vacation. And it was tricho times, and trichos are tiny little black and white mayflies that hatch early in the morning. And it's perfect, it's in later in July for me, because I can get up, I can go fish before Kathleen gets up and has her morning coffee, and the kids are up and have breakfast, I get my fish and Jones taken care of, and this. Well, it starts raining. The only part of this rain that, uh, that is really bothersome is that it rains from like 7.30 at night Till four thirty, five o'clock in the morning and then the days are absolutely beautiful 75 and sunny um it's gorgeous and then another thunderstorm and the creek is blown and i can't fish and i can't fish and i can't fish and i'm getting kind of surly
0: and so when you say the river's getting blown for any of our listeners who aren't familiar it's with
1: high that, and muddy grayish slatish color okay not fishable for dry flies right anyway this kind of goes on and on and on and finally on uh uh, Friday afternoon, the rain has kind of subsided, and the crooks are kind of clearing and falling a little bit. And I decide that uh, my dad and I are going to drive over the mountain to the Spring Creek drainage um, and fish over there or see it, anything. And, and actually, there's some fish rising and trout rising. The fishing's water's falling. It's it's okay. Things it's are not looking great. promising. Things are looking promising. and. You know, this is on Friday afternoon, and we said we'd be back by six o'clock to grill out. And, uh, Uh you know, Saturday was the family reunion, and Sunday we got to come back to Michigan. We fish and catch some fish, and I tell my dad, I said, you know, I'm going to come back over after dinner. And we jump in the truck. I leave my waiters on, drive up over the mountain. Get to our house. Kathleen, my wife, says, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're going to grill these brats out real quick, and then I'm going to go over the mountain and fish. She, I, she says, that's fine. I've got cooking to do and everything. So Miss Kathleen sounds like a prized wife, by the way. She's absolutely adorable and tolerates more than, than anyone should. I start up over the mountain, and it starts raining. But I got my waders on. I got my rain jacket on. You know, I'm, I'm going to go. I got a hall pass, and this is my last opportunity, and, you know, who knows. And I get over the mountain, and it kind of stops. And to the north and east of where I am, there's this big bolt of lightning. Oh, man. And I count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, 1,006, 1,007 crash. I'm like, okay. It's seven miles or so up that way. Yeah. I probably shouldn't fish. And then I see this fish kind of tip up and eat. And then I see that there's another fish rising in this little riffle. And I go, "Ah," you know. And about this time, there's another lightning bolt to the north and east. And, you know, this time it's like 10 miles away. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. It's gone around me. And I start fishing. And I'm catching fish. Not on every cast, not trying to say that, but I'm fishing's pretty good. And it's raining Oreos cookie size cookies The oh, raindrops. I mean it's just pouring. At any other time in the world I would have quit. I am dead serious. I probably would, it was you know, I would wouldn't have gone over the mountain in the first place. Right. And I fished two or three days ahead of time. I'd have said, ah, that's it.
0: Hold on a second. How did you get how were you hooking in? I mean, did, were you nymphing? No, I was
1: fishing little dry flies. Okay. Little Little, Tricos? No, uh, they were little blueing olives, little, little betas BWOs? on this kind of rainy, cloudy day there on Spring Creek. Anyway, okay. So I finally, I'm again that self awareness looking around, but the lightning's to the north and east, and I think oh, the storm's going that way. But it's dark and it's dumping. I mean, it's really literally Oreo sized cookie raindrops. Yeah. And I'm thinking about quitting, and I hook and land this fish. And as I'm trying to take the fly out, I break the tippet off on the fly in my forceps. And I got water running down my spectacles, and it's dark. And I go, okay, I'm not tying on another fly. This is it. I'm You've done. You've had your fun. You and I turn around, and I arguably see the largest flash of light in my life. And I got struck by lightning. Are you serious? Serious. It hits you? We surmise I got hit by a step down a tree on the bank, a very tall tree, got blown up, exploded, landed on my truck. I get knocked down, a um, little unconscious, wake oh up word. to incredible stiffness, uh, destroyed fly rod, and uh, can't hear. But that's a whole nother story. If I'd fished two or three days before then, I yeah. wouldn't have gone. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't, so I was jonesing the fish. Right. And that is what caused me to keep going over the mountain the point is whether you're biking walking hiking don't put yourself into these situations because invariably you're
0: going to get blindsided by something you're fishing by yourself you get knocked down you're unconscious and you're semi aware of what just happened to you you're in the stream yeah yeah Did you go under at any point? Um, Fortunately, I was standing in
1: really, really shallow water right on the side of the creek, so I was never underwater gurgling. I I don't know if I should tell the rest of the story. Yeah, um, please
0: do. We need these details. This is crazy.
1: Let me finish this next story. Well, I promise we'll circle back to the lightning story. Please, yes. Years ago, again, coming back to Pennsylvania, um, I was fishing this little mountain run. I'm walking into this little run. And uh you're coming down this toter hall road, and then there's this little flat bench that's kind of grassy and ferny, real brackeny before it drops down into the, the last descent into this little run. Okay. And I stumble across this doe deer. deer, actually giving birth to a fawn. Oh, no kidding. And I watch this happen. Awesome.
0: Cool experience. Yeah, one of a kind.
1: Go on and fish. Spend the rest of the day. Now, remember I said that you walk two and a half miles down in and you come to this bench. So now I fish the rest of the day. Now I'm walking up. I walk up the bench or walk up to this bench where this deer gave birth. And here's a black bear feeding on the residual afterbirth. Again, neat natural history experience. Didn't think it was, you know, I wasn't planning to see a black bear. That's one of those situations where I wanted to say where I didn't think I was going to run into that scenario on the trail. But when you go do these things, you know, let somebody know where you are. Let somebody know when you're going to come back. Let somebody know what's expected. Use your common sense. And, and I'm not trying to scare everybody. You know, that's not my intent because you are never catch a fish. Staying home, watching the six o'clock news, you got to get outside and you got to be places to, to, to see, to see things and to do that, but just have your wits about you. So looping back to the lightning, I'm sitting here and I'm wiggling my fingers and wiggling my toes and, you know, trying to figure out, uh, are you alive? Are you dead? Anyway, it's a kind of surreal experience. So I make it back to my truck. And when I get to my truck that's in this little DNR parking lot there along Spring Creek, there's a big branch and everything. i got to kind of pull that off. And I go to move that. But my upper body hurts so much from the electricity, the contractions, it was like I'd thrown a million bales of straw or hay. But anyway, I get this off. I get in my truck. I'm not sure. I, if you're... I, I mean, I'm literally I'm wiggling my fingers and toes, and Crazy. you know, pinching myself, and I'm like, "Geez, I don't know if I should drive." I said, "Maybe I better sit here a little bit, get your the, wits about, get you. my wits about me, and let the rain calm down a little bit." Yeah, which was a really good thing until I looked over and I saw a cooler. And then I said, well, you know, maybe I should hydrate. So I sat there and the cooler had a beer in it. I need to have a beer. So I sat there. I I swear to God, it seemed like the most logical thing in the world to do because I'm thinking I better hydrate. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. It's just it was strange. Things happen. It's complacency that comes up to bite us most Mountain climbing accidents happen on the descent. They don't happen on the ascent. Yeah. Because climbing, going up, we're so focused to do everything right. We're tuned in. We're tuned in and we don't, you know, we understand the risks. But once we've conquered it and everybody's high-fiving and having a great time and all now we just have to do is we get down and we let that slip a little bit, then we crash and burn. And I'm not saying that fishing is anything as drastic as descending a mountain. And I guess the point is, is, is that you know, again, get out and enjoy the outdoors. But you know, make sure that if given the situation or a situation arises, that you can get back and be safe in one piece.
0: So uh, it's so crazy, Glenn. Okay, so did you, um, did you? Withstand any long-lasting uh, long effects from that? Um, I lost significant hearing in both ears.
1: Really? Uh, I have tinnitus, you know, the ringing in the ears. Um, no other real long-term noticeable effects other than the, the hearing issue. Wow. Which um, is much more important, especially for fishing, especially for night fishing. You know, everything circles back to trout in my life. Yeah. But... You know, it's one thing to be able to see a fish feed, but, you know, when you're hex fishing or doing stuff at night, it's that audibleness, that sound of that. Um, but hearing a fish feed, um, and that's kind of, that's been taken away a little bit mm-hmm. uh, with my
0: hearing issues. So Glenn's talking about night fishing. Um, and if any of our listeners are uh, avid fly fishers, or if there's uh, anybody who's, uh, completely unfamiliar with the idea. Uh, basically, what he's talking about is a hex hatch, which takes place every summer uh, in the state of Michigan. And folks will charge the banks of uh, of all rivers, really, mostly up, up north, but um, all of the rivers experience some hex hatch, right? Um, majority of the
1: rivers in Michigan have hexagenia the, the what's known as the giant Michigan mayfly. Okay. Um, but, you know, certainly the acavel, the manistee, the pier marquette, uh, the the more rivers of notoriety certainly have those bugs, and and people do uh, head there.
0: Yeah, and we're talking night fishing. We're not talking dusk. People full-on fish through the night. Uh, They'll put, you know, they'll don headlamps and take take enough supplies to get them through the night, and uh, they'll fish by sound. So you hear big, big fish cutting out from underneath the banks and uh swallowing these big hex flies that that glenn was breaking down for us and it's not sight casting it's uh it's audio cast so if you hear uh a glurp you cast to the glurp it's uh it's a it's a whole different ball game from what i understand i've never even done it but uh everything i've read says it's an absolute riot uh you know it's it's
1: like anything else i think uh it can be fun. It can be. It's but it's fishing. It can be challenging and frustrating, um, but certainly, you know, large brown trout are more of a nocturnal feeder than a daytime feeder. Okay, uh, and uh, they do come out and cruise, and uh, it can be fun. I mean, it, but it's it's swinging for the and... It's swinging for the fences. So
0: uh. cool. So from the other the other piece that you shared with us um, when you had a mission. You had tricos on your mind. You had that hole at the end of the two-and-a-half-mile walk um, already painted, and you pretty much had your first cast planned out, it sounds like. But instead, w- you were interrupted by something completely different, and it changed the course of your story for that day. And it was a, it was a doe deer giving birth to a fawn. And you were gifted with the opportunity to watch that firsthand. What was that like? I mean, that's, there's a life lesson there. One of the coolest
1: experiences in my life was I was fishing with my dad a few years ago. Okay. And we got done fishing one place, and we were driving thirty minutes to fish a spinnerfall back in Pennsylvania. We're yep. going to fish a spinnerfall on Spring Creek. Um, and there was this one specific spot that I wanted to be. Okay. Yeah. And uh and I was driving and my dad kind of dozes off in the car um uh, between spots. Yeah. This time my dad would have been in his uh I don't know, mid-70s, 75, 76 years old. Okay. And so he uh, he dozes off in the car, and I'm looking over at him going, Jamie Christmas, you know. He, he, <laughs> now, as a kid I always slept in the truck. But anyway, so we, <laughs> we get to this spot and I kinda, you know. Pull off the hard pack into this little park, and then the truck kind of jars, and he kind of jostles his head. And where are we? And I said, you know where we are. Come on, get ready. We need to go and and set up for the spinnerfall. Right. And I'm chomping at the bit. You're and in a hurry. I we this is where we want to be, and I want to be there for a variety of reasons. But for one of the reasons was that it's this big long ruffle that kind of dumps into a. a Slow deep pool, but the pool, the way it the bottom topography was, my dad could stand there without really having to move around. And I realized that he was tired, and but he could have some really good fishing, you know, in this spot. Okay. So just really good access. So good access. Anyway, and I could go up in the faster water or whatever, but he was going to be in a comfortable place. So, anyway, um, He's kind of fiddling around and getting started. Oh, i got to put on a new leader. I said, here, let me have you ride. Right. No, 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 I'll take care of it. And in pulls this guy, and he, I'll never forget this. He had a blue Volvo station wagon. Okay. And he's this short, uh, I'm not trying to I'm be stereotypical here. No, but you're fine. He's this kind of short, older guy. He's got on a tweed hat. He's smoking a pipe. Um, he's the quintessential kind of, Pennsylvania cat skill fly fisherman, you know if you will. Sure. And uh, he he goes, uh, "Are you boys planning to fish right at the base of the riffle?" And my dad says, "It doesn't matter to us. Wherever you want to fish, you go right ahead." Oh no. And uh and he says, "Well, I, I it's kind of like to." fish there at the end of the riffle, because that's one of the places where my my legs can hold me in that flat water, which is right where I wanted to put my dad. Now, you have to understand that if my dad's 75, this guy's probably five years. i am say he's 80-ish, a little over 80s. Oh, okay. So, he's a little older than my dad. Okay. Okay. And my dad says, no problem. Well, I can tell you, anytime my dad and my dad said no problem all the time, the only people that it was a problem to was the people that he was with because he would bend over backwards for everybody else. And you, well, that old guy was going to fish there and no argument with my kind dad.
0: Kind of volunteered your day so away. So I'm in like, you've
1: got to be kidding me. Yeah. So we uh, we go and up into this heavy water and and it's heavy, fast, broken water where we're, we are and anyway, the old guy sets up down below. Yeah. And we go up the trail and we're catching some fish and pretty soon I've got a really nice fish going. Yeah. But it's it's downstream of me a little ways and I don't have a good angle on it so I, I kind of motioned to my dad to come up and my dad's like, no, 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 no. And, uh, he's like you catch it and i said no a- anyway you
0: well, were kind of here for him
1: yeah i'm kind of and i'm like and pretty soon here comes this older guy kind of up the trail behind us it's a pretty decent trail he says hey it's getting dark i can't see i'm done fishing for the evening you if ahead? you guys want to drop back down but you know i i I, I broke my fly off and my dad says oh here glenn will take care of you he's got a fish that he wants to catch and tells this guy where this and this guy sees this fish
0: i'm like gee <laughs> many christmas
1: dad you know if you didn't want to catch it i could have anyway
0: i want to run into your dad like every day on the bank well, that's, that's so anyway that's the santa claus of the trout stream right so there. <laughs> yeah exactly
1: so anyway i w- wade back across the creek and get this guy and Tie on a fly and take him out with me, and he's he's kind of shaky. And uh, anyway, he ends up catching this fish, okay. And it was a very nice fish, and he thanked me profusely, and said that it was probably the last really good fish that he would ever catch. Wow! Because he couldn't he he typically stopped fishing before the good ones. Again, Browntrop being nocturnal really started going. He had to fish in places that was limited in access for his legs. And and, and this was, you know, had he been by himself, he wouldn't have been able to do this. Okay. Which changed the whole perspective Mm. of the deal. Yeah. You know, one minute I'm frustrated that my dad has... Told this old guy that he can stand right where I wanted to put my dad. It was no problem. The next is that he's offering me to help this guy catch this fish when I wanted to help my dad to catch this fish. Yeah. And, but then this older gentleman did. Um, and then you realize that uh, the fish didn't matter. There's so much more to angling. Than the end trophy, and maybe that's a, a philosophical viewpoint. Everything in life, success or failures, based upon your expectations going in. In fishing, if you're, and, and maybe I just set low expectations for myself. That's why I'm happy. <laughs> um, but but in fishing, if if you're going in with the expectations that you need to have fill this requirement whatever that requirement is. Right. Number, size, species. Every time you go to the river, you're destined to be disappointed. If if you go to the creek and say it doesn't matter if I catch a fish or not today cuz I may see a doe give birth to a fawn and walking out I may stumble into a black bear feeding, then it's everything's cool. I've caught more fish than I should be allowed and yeah. I've been very very blessed yeah I don't need to catch another fish but what I do need is the river therapy yeah I need the natural history experience I need to see the flitting of mayflies flying upstream I need the the personal interaction with family and friends that participate yeah um and that 's what it 's about it 's not about numbers or size um it 's about all those other things that that kind of hold uh dear places in your soul
0: yeah before I let you go i want to do uh i want to do a couple more things i want to do a lightning round where i get to uh to ask a few few off the cuff questions and then uh, I want to hear a little bit about how uh how our listener base can help you out um As far as uh, as far as supporting you, your show, your speaking engagements, potentially some private lessons. Um, I know that you offer uh, a pretty extensive list of used and vintage gear here. Um, Why don't you take a minute to quick tell us what you got going on in the shop and uh, how we can find you?
1: Well, we're located in Rockford, Michigan, uh, on Algoma Avenue. The the easiest thing is to go to the webpage, which is www.troutmoor.net, like the Moors of Scotland, Trout and Moor little play on words there. Cool. Um, And that's .net, not .com. Yes, .net. The store is kind of two-sided. We've got uh, the one side, uh, the the right and left brain, if you will. One side is uh, commodity fishing products with Sage and Sims and Rio and Scientific Anglers and Scott and Winston and whoever.
0: All the major brands. All the
1: major brands. And the other side is we have 4,000 plus or minus fly fishing and wing shooting books, collectible artwork, uh, collectible bamboo rods and fishing reels. Uh, so uh, give us a call if you're looking for any of those things. Um, and that, so in inventory right now we have this wonderful Canals original. Oh, cool. Um, so you know things come and things go. Um, and again, it's there's more to fly fishing, or more to, to at least in my mind, than uh, than just putting a bend in the rod and catching fish there's the artistic side of the coin there's the literary side of the coin there's the philosophical side of the coin um and we try and blend all those together here
0: so glenn if tell me if i were somebody who i i do a little bit of fly fishing i've spent some time um fishing out west fishing uh um a little bit out east and and then doing some some stream fishing here in our home state of michigan but uh for the guy who's looking to get into this sport, or at least just give it a shot, um, what do you recommend?
1: Well, ask a lot of questions. First, if, if you're talking rod reel type of thing, um, you don't need to spend a lot of money. Okay. Uh, eight and a half to nine foot five weight fly rod with some sort of simplistic reel uh, and a weight forward fly line you can get in the game. There are packages for $129 that are out there that are really nice, quality, comfortable rods. Um, So from $120 to $200, you can get started in that. Um, Anything less than that, and I think uh, you're just fly rods or tools, and and you're going to Maybe struggle a little bit, but for that price range, you can get it started. Okay, And then you have to focus on where you're going to fish and do not buy a bunch of flies. Buy three, four flies and go fish and write down your success. Buy another three, four flies and go fish and build your arsenal that way. You can get started. I mean, it's people think it's expensive,
0: but it sounds pretty reasonable.
1: It's heck of a lot less expensive than buying a boat
0: yeah that's true okay so um buy a handful of flies not uh, not a fly box full buy three or five flies go out and then journal right write down what, right what happened down, copious notes detailed notes
1: um and refer back to them yeah so you start to understand you know insects hatch like vegetable gardens you know Early in the spring in Michigan, we want to eat asparagus because it's the first thing that's there. We don't want to eat sweet corn that's been shipped in from Georgia or California. Um, and the insects hatch and come to, to harvest or, or come to, to fruitfulness the same way as like a vegetable garden do. So the trout are feeding on different insects, insects at different times of the year. It takes a little bit to understand and learn that. But, by writing detailed notes of where you fished, how you fished, when you fished, where all that, you can refer back to that and, and it increases uh or decreases the learning curve and it, it gives you a baseline for when you go the next time
0: now for the uh for the purist, for the connoisseur uh for somebody who's who's kind of past that introductory intermediate phase uh who really wants to get into tackling small stream. Rookies in the state of Michigan. What's the ideal setup look like for for somebody like that who's got a quiver of rods and just needs one specific for our our type of of fishing?
1: Well, I, I think if you're talking small streams somewhere, because fly rods are a long lever, and we drift our flies, in presentation is. Utmost importance in my mind. It's the key. Yeah. I always prescribe a little longer rod than a shorter rod because you get a better, what we call drag free drift and float. So a seven and a half foot four weight. Um, Is a little more all around than say a seven and a half foot three weight or a smaller, more diminutive rod because you may throw some big stimulators or grasshoppers. You want enough line mass to turn over some bigger flies, or if you have to throw, you know, a a little bait fish imitation of some sort. So a seven and a half foot four weight something with a little backbone, something's got a little oomph to it. Okay. Um, would be what I recommend.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, and any of the major brands will, will carry it You know, cast them all. Okay.
1: Cast as many as you can, preferably side to side. One of them will just feel best in your hand.
0: And, Glenn, you encourage your, your clientele base to come in and do that with all of your equipment, right?
1: Yeah, cast everything.
0: Okay, cool. Cool. All right, lightning round. What books are you reading?
1: Um, what am I reading right now? I am just finished... Harrison's new uh, book the last Lunch, his last post humor or er, uh, food book and I'm e- reading Annie Prose's wonderful novel Barkskins, uh, about uh, the history of the timbering business it's it's kind of a historical novel by her who you know found her fame with the shipping news and drove back Mountain awesome. I also just finished Jerry Custich. Jerry's an angling author. Um, He was uh, at one time built bamboo rods for Winston Fly Rods, then went on to start the Sweetgrass Rod Company. Oh, wow. So he's an Um, artisan. Yeah. Jerry uh, has a, a new manuscript coming out. I don't know I'm... I'm gonna not tell you the title because uh, I don't know if it's common knowledge yet. But he sent me a, a copy of that uh, of his manuscript. Uh, I'm actually he asked me to write a, a dust jacket blurb for it, um, and I finished Jerry's new book. And for angling people, you are gonna want to to stay get tuned. The uh, the newest Jerry Custage book out. It's very very strong.
0: Okay, very cool. Um, well, thank you for that. What's your trip um, of a lifetime look like as far as uh, fishing in the lower 48 with any rod, any setup, and any company?
1: A week at the Cedar Run Inn in Cedar Run, Pennsylvania, which is this wonderful bed and breakfast that if uh, you go through their old sign in books you'll see my name and my grandfather's name back into i think 72 73 74 it goes back to the story where i caught my first fish on their guest register i would stay there for a week and i would fish slate run cedar run pine creek um as for the rods i'd fish a variety of rods um some bamboo, some fiberglass. Um, I would read every morning um, after breakfast and fish afternoons and evenings. Um, I'd have my bike because if any of you are listening to this or hikers or bikers, uh, there's a great trail that runs up the the grant runs up the pine creek valley that's a rails to trails a linear state park okay so i would spend some time biking cool but i would be in that part of the world awesome if i couldn't do that the only other place that that would go would be yellowstone national park it's the greatest thing in our public trust
0: uh is it'd be yellowstone go roosevelt yes We've got a growing fly fishing population, um, which means that there's higher traffic. Um, It's a great thing for the sport. It's a great thing for the economy. And uh, all around, I think with the right mindset, we all get along just fine. Word of advice to a new angler who's approaching a hole that's that's already being occupied or a busy section of water, still wants to get out of the water and, and cast a few, but not entirely sure on how to proceed. Uh, Word of advice for that that person.
1: Well, I I think elbow room. Um, Michigan has a history because of the anadromous runs of fish, salmon, steelhead, to fish shoulder to shoulder. Um, The concept is, if you are coming in second or third. Would you be cool if that person low holds you or dropped below you or that? If I always say start above the if the person's fishing downstream, always start above that person and follow them. Mm. Don't start below them and fish to water that they haven't got to yet. If they're, you know, and if they're conversely, they're fishing upstream, don't go up above them to beat them to new water. Yeah. You know, this isn't a race. Um and just have some res- personal respect about you. Uh and and by and large, outside of the the salmon and steelhead season, there's not a lot of issues with that. Um but big fish bring bring out big crowds.
0: Um what's been a productive fly for you uh this this
1: time of year? Well certainly this time of the year, uh brown drakes um are fishing very well on surface, both in the sub-adult, the the done stage, or the full-adult, the spinner stage. Also, some caddis uh, are flitting around. Uh, The hexes, the giant Michigan mayfly, really hasn't started to pop yet, but with these 90-degree days, it should pop any time now. So we'll move into that hex thing. And then, you know, I still... I like fishing little soft tackles, partridge in yellow, partridge in greens, partridge in oranges, uh, you know, little wet flies like that. And, uh, you know, hope that somebody somebody wants to dance.
0: Cool. Uh, Last piece. Have you ever heard of these? The
1: airlock indicators,
0: yes. We we sell them
1: here in the store. Do you? This is a really unique uh, design of, of, you know, the the formed floatable bobber or what we call strike indicators. Yeah. Um, but the way they have this in line uh, with the screw. A slotted post. A slotted or, post yeah. in there. You know, they don't kink your leaders. They f- ride straight. They're easy on and off. Um, I will tell you, if, if you have uh, fat fingers like me, sometimes uh, the the little nuts, um, you want to have a couple extra and they give them to you. Okay. Um, but, boy, they, they hold well, they're easy to adjust, they're, they're really, really nice indicators.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I, I know that my cousin uh, was actually uh, the driving force behind that, and uh, he and my uncle tinkered with, with this concept and design for the last three years. Um, and they finally got it nailed to the point where I think they're pushing out a really good product. A lot of uh, a lot of the guides that I've spoken to are liking them. A lot of the anglers that I speak to are digging on them, and I'm glad to hear that you've got them here in the shop. So yeah,
1: they're, they're a very nice indicator.
0: Yep, Airlock indicators. Uh, you can go online to grab them. Um, they're also available at most of your major uh, tackle stores and fly shops, like Glenn's at uh, at the Great Lakes Fly Fly Fishing Company here in Rockford. So. Uh, Glenn, it was really a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your stories. We, uh, we, we love your passion, and uh, we hope uh, to see you soon. Not a problem. Thanks for the opportunity, and uh, for those listening, uh,
1: get outside.